Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance.
Colin Powell and Dick Cheney at the same time at the height of the Iraq war, like with a drone strike when they were in Canada or something like that. Um, but those people aren't beloved. So even that doesn't do it justice, but you get the idea. Um, and so like now those of us who are, you know, obviously it's scary when two major powers clash at any level, but it became pretty evident on the like sort of not insane left that, you know, those of us observing, it was like, this isn't fucking going anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, um, as I was saying off air, the Iranians, well, we don't want a fucking war with Iran. Like we don't fight wars against actual powerful countries will fight proxy wars or whatever like that was the whole thing about why invade iraq because iraq can't defend themselves um so that was clear but then you know furthermore on the other side of it iran wants a war with us even less than we do with them so it it clearly wasn't going to go anywhere and then um and then it became just trolling like almost immediately like (laughs) so the Iranians were like, okay, fuck you. We're going to vote in parliament to call the U.S. and the U.S. military terrorists. Okay, wow, amazing. You know, who gives a shit? And then uh, the funnier troll to me was when the Iranians invited all these black Americans to uh, to this, like, discrimination conference or something. Um, but it was clearly like, okay, now this is just sort of like a modified tweet storm. And then, and then Trump uh, – I mean, the only sort of like serious escalation was Trump started flying B-52s over uh, the Middle East somewhere to like signal to Iran that there's nukes. But I mean, again, who fucking cares? Like that doesn't we do that shit all the time. I mean, it doesn't get reported, but like stuff like that happens all the time. And then he tweeted, meanwhile, I'm going to blow up your cultural sites or whatever. Right. So he starts threatening uh, to blow up cultural sites, which again, this is just throwing shit to Bernie because no one's going to like openly when we do that shit. And like when we did that shit in the Iraq war, it was like, you don't talk about that. So like the fact that he's saying it to me, as soon as he said that, I was like, Oh, this is Trump's version of detente. It's off the table. When, when Trump starts yelling that he's going to do shit, that means he's as history shows, that means he's doing nothing. Right. This is him like backing off, which is what happened. Uh, so the Iranians, quote unquote, like bombed a U.S. base or whatever, a Iraqi base, and but obviously hit nothing. This was the same thing as when Trump was trying to get the Warhawks on the left, meaning the Democrats, off his ass, bombing this air, this unoccupied airstrip in Syria. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's like, "Oh my!" You know, Brian Williams is like, as Jimmy Dore said, like nutting in his pants <laughs> watching these. The be- quoting Leonard Cohen, the right. beauty of our weapons or yeah. whatever the fuck, just crazy, like straight up, like beyond North Korean level, like propaganda. And then, you know, the next day they're flying flights out of it because like it was obviously bullshit. Well, so the same thing with the, the Iranians and then Trump. <laughs> and, you know, Trump's interested in detente because um, as soon as the Ar- Iranians hit whatever u.s site or whatever trump's like oh no casualties we're all good here like they're standing down yeah it's it's fine who gives a fuck so now why do i say trump's throwing the election to bernie well because this gave bernie the opportunity to be the only anti-war candidate now you can say well tulsi too but tulsi no she's pulling at what fucking like half a percent like it's over 
Um, you know, more importantly, she's he, Bernie's not taking the position of like, oh, Suleimani's a bad guy and all this stuff. So, but we shouldn't have done this. This is too aggressive and too dangerous, which is like people were noting. Warren's tweet was like directly stealing a quote from like the Pentagon or something. Um, and Biden and Buttigieg and all these idiots saying the same thing. Bernie's saying this is fucking bullshit and try and then um, introducing legislation to stop the funding uh, for a potential war with Iran, which is beautiful because Bernie's, you know, that is a, that's a fine, great move because you have to like take Trump seriously uh, at that level. Or it doesn't, Bernie doesn't lose anything by taking the threat seriously, even though we all know that it wasn't going anywhere. So this is like Trump, you know, and then people are like, oh, Bill Clinton invades or whatever, like starts bombing Iraq because he's getting impeached. Trump's not even going that far. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I, I'm getting – it's always like really depressing to watch the left react to shit like this because they're so stupid. Like they're like – like honestly this whole – it's it's all well and good to like have these marches to – you know, because be, no war with Iran. Okay, fine. But like the threat of that was much, much higher with Obama um, and Hillary Clinton and the fucking – you know – on the on the stick so on the joystick so to speak but like <clears throat> and i say that only because it wasn't being talked about like the thing i bring up is like I, <laughs> this is so the fact that this got no coverage just proves how like controlled the media is by the war machine um during the, there was like a syrian dust up in 2013 where it was people were starting to wonder if it was going to turn into a world war or like a big proxy war. What happened was Obama was um, like, there was a kind of a standoff of sorts in mounting tensions between like Russian site, like Russia was backing Assad and then Obama was trying to bomb shit. Well, Iran was like, if you fucking keep doing this, we're going to invade or something or like they were openly threatening the U S I'd never seen that happen anywhere in my life before and the obama's response was to completely withdraw (laughs) and i was like how the fuck is this not being talked about we just we lost all fucking legitimacy in the region openly and nobody's reporting on it um and so like the which means there was an actual deterrent and the deterrent wasn't russia the deterrent was iran so like it's it's much less of a threat now where Trump is, you know, and, and it's it's so amazing. Like everybody thinks Trump's crazy or boneheaded and it certainly can look like that from a certain perspective. But to me, like every time he does this shit that you're just like, holy shit, what the fuck was that? You know, even from the left perspective, um, <laughs> it, it always like it, it always like everything comes up mailhouse because – like Trump, Trump literally, I mean, okay. So of course, Netanyahu immediately is like, oh, jackpot. We're going to do this. Three days later, he's like, we're not going to get dragged into a war with Iran, which is fucking hilarious because he, who wants war with Iran more supposedly than Netanyahu? Mm-hmm. He can't even posture because it's too dangerous. You know, like I was saying off air, my quip is like, it's like he said that and then his advisors were like, um, dude, do you realize Iran's like right over there, right? Then he's like, uh-oh. Uh, and like Trump then 
<laughs> so then part of the supposed like illegality of this, quote unquote, I love how this is illegal. It's illegal to kill Suleimani, but it's not illegal to bomb fucking drone bomb Yemen for five years straight. Mm-hmm. Nobody's talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and like so there's a lot of opportunistic hay being made about this. And I do think like that is kind of, you know, I don't think it was an act of war, but it was definitely it was something that could have been a trigger. Uh, if everybody had lost their minds so that there's sort of a danger there, obviously at the beginning, but then it became clear that it wasn't a danger. But the the point being like uh, Trump goes, <laughs> Trump says if Congress wants Congress should go to Twitter if they want to see what I'm doing, which is really funny because honestly, like he's right at the, at a formal level. Like you can't claim that he, nobody was notified about this. Um, obviously they're talking about the war powers act, but that hasn't, we haven't observed that since world war two. We haven't declared war in what seven, what, when was that? 41. I don't even know if they did it then. So at least, at least 70, if not 80 years, um, or almost 80 years. So that's hilarious. And then Trump starts taking out Facebook ads, like congratulating himself for killing Suleimani. (laughs) Which is like, this is not a, this is not somebody who gives a shit about being in power. Like, he wants to be in power, but like he obviously has no interest in maintaining any sort of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this whole ordeal illuminated to me something that I can't believe that I haven't seen before. Which is, it's so obvious, and nobody's I've not seen anybody point this out. So Trump is Trump acts like a warlord. Um, but people keep wanting him to be a president. He's not a president. He's a warlord LARPing as president. <laughs> a gangster. Yeah. Well, no, no. A, a warlord mm. – a gangster tries to keep control of mm. things. A warlord doesn't give a shit. Sure. But a warlord also doesn't want to go to war. Mm. A warlord just rules by might or tries to and then generally only fights civil the wars. perception of might perhaps. No, no, no. no. A warlord might. has actual – I'm not All saying right. Trump has actual might. Sure. I'm saying this is the logic, which is like if you have a African warlord, what are they doing? They're just literally executing all their en- mm. uh, political enemies. They're just like totally corrupt and all mm. that. What I'm saying is that's Trump's MO, but he can't do it. Like he can't get away with actually killing people, so he does what he thinks – um, will serve the same function. Like he sounds like fucking Idi Amin. He's just saying crazy shit all the time. But again, he's actually elected. The thing is, he's actually elected. The thing is, it's like he does have formal legitimacy, mm-hmm. but he's still got a warlord mentality. I don't think that. See, I don't like this thing of like Trump's a gangster because he doesn't act like a gangster. Mm-hmm. Gangsters run protection rackets. They're like not even nominally in power. Um, and they're all, they want to keep everything quiet. Trump's doing the exact opposite Mm -hmm. of that. So like, and I'm not criticizing you. I'm saying I hear this Mm -hmm. argument and it's like, I I don't even think that makes sense. Like furthermore, so to my, what I was saying is like warlords only end up fighting civil wars, but they don't want to be in civil wars. So that's the reason that like people can't, it's so amazing that people like still think Trump's serious when he says crazy shit. He obviously it, literally every time he backs off mm-hmm. again, that's warlord shit. Like, Oh fuck you. We're the biggest, strongest. We're going to fucking kill you. And then they don't do anything because they can't do anything. 
Now, this is extra interesting because if you watch like um, – but because the paradox is if – you know, I mentioned this I think uh, last time. If you watch Jeremy Scahill's excellent documentary Dirty Wars, Obama made it so you can militarily kind of act like a warlord around the world by um, empowering JSOC to just have like this massive – Probably the black bud, the military black budget that the president directly controls is probably as big or bigger than the actual war budget. Um, and so Trump can go around doing this. The, the, what he, the principle, quote unquote, principle that he's violating is he's talking about it mm-hmm. and he's hitting like very high profile targets. With Obama, it's we kill American citizens that nobody knows about or that will care that much about. We bomb Yemen. We bomb Syria. Nobody talks about it. Everybody sort of tacitly agrees. Like the Republicans weren't anti-war when Obama was doing it. They're sort strangely, they're sort of anti-war now that Trump's doing it. Like meaning, and I'm just talking about, you know, our friend of the pod, Tucker Carlson, uh, you know, the, as, as Anna pointed out on red scare, you know, the last leftist in the American media or whatever um, in the sense of like, it's tongue in cheek, but it's also like he's anti-capitalist sometimes. And he's also definitely anti-imperialist most of the time, um, albeit for probably really dark and cynical reasons. But <laughs> that being the case, like Trump, Trump's entire political logic, again, he's just a fucking war. Oh, so the Scahill thing. Obama made it so you could act like a warlord. Trump is like, no, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna act like Idi Amin, a real warlord. And uh, but Jeremy Scahill was he interviewed these Somali warlords, and he's like, you know, kind of asking, just asking like naive questions, like, why do you, why are you doing this? What like, I, I don't know if these guys were like Al Shabaab guys or just local warlords, and they were like, who do you think taught us to do this? Like the U.S. trained us how to do all this shit. They're paying for this, um, and so like the 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 maxim or whatever that Trump's violating is he's openly being a terrorist instead of pretending to not be a terrorist, and that's what's throwing the establishment into a frenzy, and that's why it's throwing everything to Bernie because he's creating a scenario where now Bernie, at least in this moment, can. I th- he fucking saved Bernie's presidency precisely because they had to delay. They had to stop talking about the impeachment for a week and a half. And that's all that it took because now, unless Pelosi literally wants to just effectively, you know, do a drone strike on their own primary process. If you send the articles of the impeachment to the Senate now, it will happen. The trial will start the fucking day of, of the Iowa caucus. It's too late now. They can't do it. So they'd have to wait until after Super Tuesday. If they do that, then the impeachment looks stupider and stupider. And if Bernie wins even half of those primaries, it's fucking over. So, like, um, Trump is playing, like, this perfect game. Again, I don't know if this is intentional or unconscious or whatever, but it's it's increasingly looking intentionally like he wants Bernie to win because I don't nobody else benefits from this. <laughs> right, and that, the irony is, to, uh, to your point, it's almost as if the the Iranians are playing along. They're like, you know, we want Bernie to win too. We're just going to shoot a bomb at this empty airstrip or this empty tanger, right, in Iraq, 
and that's our retaliation. Yeah. And, and so everybody's in on it. Right. Uh, helping out Bernie. And then the, I mean, to your point, I, I was following this on the, uh, the Facebook and, and social media too, is this sort of the moderate left and my friends who are liberals, all these, this anxiety over World War Three and these sudden posts for this anti-war march and sign this petition and all that stuff, like which is all typically good. I'm anti-war too, of course, but that didn't. It's, these folks are not recognizing kind of what's at play here and what was what's been going on and what the history is, which you've already pointed out of this particular president and his his acts relative to his his speech. Mm-hmm. So, well, and then like the just the the other like reaction. Uh, when I was talking about like it's depressing or whatever to see the reaction in the left, mm, right. I'm talking about like, um, and I I'm with you 100, percent but like this, there's this other faction of the left that's like, <laughs> they're like quote unquote anti-imperialists, um, which to them means we have to revere Soleimani as this like anti-imperialist. It's like holy shit, like right. we don't need to say that. Like, right. and those are the same people who are. I mean, to your point again, um, had nothing to say when. Uh, Obama's doing the dirty wars, et cetera. Et cetera. It, well, yeah, not at this level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, they unfortunately they were, mm-hmm. but it was like they became these sort of like open Assadists, and it was like, oh Jesus Christ! Like we don't, we you can like I mean, Suleimani's more like you can at least argue that some of the shit he did was like even accidentally progressive. Again, like fighting with the Kurds and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Assad. I mean, like the problem with um, the problem with what we're doing in Syria is that Assad was elected. I don't even care if the elections are corrupt. Like he was elected. You can't deny that. Doesn't mean we have to say he wasn't. He's not a butcher or isn't like a bad motherfucker. Um, like the reason we shouldn't be in Syria isn't because Assad's a hero. But you will see that kind of language on the left and like. It's just literally fucking boneheaded. Like it doesn't take it doesn't account for reality whatsoever. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> there's there's also this opposite sort of tendency to be like, well, we need to criticize. We need to both be critical of Suleimani and the U.S. It's like, well, of course, the motherfucker's dead, though. Like the sort of in joke on in, in some group chat chats i'm in with you know my quote-unquote cadre are like <laughs> i just kept being like i miss Suleimani. like let's bring him back um but anyway like the point i'm making is like we don't have to take this pure humanitarian line either like it, how about we say i don't give a fuck if Suleimani was a good or bad guy and just simply say like and not be like oh trump's gonna start world war three no just understand how cynical all this is like you know because the boneheadedness at at first glance well it is boneheaded on its face like of trump doing this uh you know on chapo felix or his guest was pointing out like (laughs) if um the 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 military advisors are partly to blame because they know how crazy trump is so you give him a crazy option he's gonna take it so don't even put that in the fucking table um and like that's sort of the bottom line. Like Trump is, Trump has, like this sort of internal divining rod to find the thing that's going to blow up whatever the establishment wants. Like he will not abide by the status quo, no matter how deranged it looks. Mm-hmm. And again, it just keeps coming up Millhouse. Like every fucking time, 
every time Trump does something like this, even if I get a hint in a, my, I'm like, oh, what's he doing? Then it always ends up just shattering the fucking ideological edifice. Um, so, you know, he might have saved Bernie's campaign. So maybe we should sw- <clears throat> shift to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I started getting very concerned, like especially last Sunday, when too much good news started right. happening. Uh, first, the Vikings won a playoff game, which is like on the road. How did the, how does that happen? <laughs> they out they out touchdown Drew Brees mm-hmm. at home. Like I didn't even watch the game. I just uh, I could I was like asleep or something, and then I look at my phone and our interlocutor is like, "Holy shit, they won!" And it's like, what the fuck? I so that's already like. You know, we're Vikings fans, so that's a bad omen if they're winning playoff <laughs> games. Um, it means we don't know how to sort of r- respond to reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're we're caught with our pants down. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, I obviously have gotten into great detail about why I think the Democrats are the reason Bernie won't get elected and, you know, why the impeachment is to blame for that. But what we're seeing now is like then Trump does this shit in Iran and to be, I'm not saying that I thought that was good news uh, right away or even now I'm just saying like it's playing in Bernie's favor. But then we were started to see these polls. Well, so Bernie out fundraised everybody. Um, He said he was setting like all time records of fundraising at this point in the campaign. Um, He's tied for first with I in Iowa with, a three-way tie this is so fucking insane. A three-way tie between at twenty-three percent Bernie, Biden, and Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. Again, who are these people? There's not that many CIA agents in Iowa to be <laughs> voting for Buttigieg. On another show, I saw I was a YouTube Hardlands Media. They were like, "Where are these Biden voters? Mm-hmm. I've never seen one anywhere. Mm-hmm. I've never even heard tell of one." Um, so those poll and you know when they were doing more like sort of in-depth weird polls about like how committed are you to your candidate how passionate are you all this stuff and it it's obvious that like the bernie voters are more um zealot zealotists or whatever so they're more likely to show up in the first place like to actually fucking go out and vote in a primary because as they were pointing out hardly like 10 percent of the electorate 10% 10% of the – like whatever. He said like I think 120 million people voted in the general election and only 10 million voted in the primaries mm-hmm. in 2016. So the – like it's always going to be the diehards who are there and obviously Bernie has all the diehards. So you know this these polls could be just complete horseshit, which is what we've sort of been speculating the whole time. That being said, even so, he's still mm-hmm. tied for first in Iowa, winning New Hampshire – I mean, they don't even report on Nevada. Why? Because Bernie's just going to destroy Nevada. Latinos love Bernie because he's the only one talking about shit they care about. And what do they care about? Their number one concern? Climate change. Because, you know, as the racist, identitarian, Democratic Party would have you believe, all they care about is immigration because they're, you know, they're Latinx or whatever. No, they care about the shit that we all fucking care about. Healthcare, climate change, Mm -hmm. fucking sending their kids to college, all that shit. So, um, but Bernie, you know, sort of seemingly, you know, to the point where even like they had to modify, they had to start writing really 
abstract hit pieces now. So the headlines are shit like, it looks like Bernie could win. Mm -hmm. Democratic insiders fear that Bernie could win. And then you read the articles and it's just like, it's basically blaming a like they're, they're basically like, well, you know, these moderate voters are all split and that's why Bernie's ahead and blah, blah, blah. So they're still hit pieces. They're still saying like, he's not legitimate and stuff, but they're having to admit that they can't get around even their own bullshit polls. Right now that this scares the shit out of me. So um, it should be good news. And I guess, you know, sort of on its face, it's good news, but like it's starting to feel like we're in a moment like occupy wall street where the, and, and, the, but except it's the whole country instead of just being there in New York. Like when I was in New York on, uh, you know, how to occupy the, there was a palpable fear about like, you know, sort of, I brought this up before, but, um, it, during the French revolution, uh, the, you know, Robespierre, saint Jouis, they were talking about how, like, this is not like a good, positive, glorious situation. This is terrifying. Mm -hmm. We are potentially opening, you know, we're standing at the precipice of an abyss that we could easily fall into. And uh, I think that was Robespierre. saint Jouis was saying like, we're basically like a boat in a storm and uh, like, there's no telling where this is going to go. And right. like that, that was the feeling uh, in New York around Occupy was obviously people were energized and there was a lot of like sort of dark hope, let's say that permeated the streets. But like at the communism conference, when there were real discussions about like, okay, if this is happening, we're having a real social breakdown because, you know, it's important to keep in mind on October 15th, this massive day of action, there were over a thousand cities that were being occupied around the world in the name of Occupy Wall Street. So, like, it, it was possible that there were a real opening was happening. And so, like, the the communist intellectuals are sort of debating taking trying to take seriously the question if we were to be able to take power what would that look like and how should we go about it that's always that should always be a terrifying question if it's not a terrifying question then you're not in a real revolution you're in a fake revolution you're probably in something like the you know a false revolution like the nazis tried to right. stage yeah i was just gonna say fascism exactly um so you're if it's if it feels good you're in a fascist spectacle if it's terrifying then it's probably Probably a real revolutionary opening. Well, why the fear? So Zizek's pointed out that like for a true revolutionary, it's ultimately a conservative position because it's based on fear. But the fear is not, uh, if, you know, it, it's not about like being afraid to take power. It's the fear that motivates a revolutionary is what happens if we don't act. Mm -hmm. And so um, like – because there's, you know, I, I probably mentioned this in the lead up to labor's failure, but, you know, there, t if Corbyn would have won, it would have been a nightmare and not because he was in power, but because of like the, the, um, the level of attacks that they would have to fight off from international capital, from the EU, probably from just every fucking angle, it, it could easily become a sort of like. Not a not literally a shooting war, but like a, a civil war politically. Um, I think we're headed for no matter what happened. Like let's say like quote unquote best case scenario, Bernie wins out. 
Super Tuesday. He gets 80% of all the primaries. He's ahead by 30% of delegates. Um, and you get to the convention and the Bernie people have been doing a full core press for f- six months straight. They are, there's, there's a hundred thousand people outside and they're all support Bernie. And the, the delegation is not going to leave until Bernie gets the nomination. So you got two, there's two plays. One play is the Democrats say, we literally don't give a shit about our own legitimacy, which they don't as per the impeachment, as per Pelosi saying Trump's good for business, as per the argument I made on this podcast that now Michael Hudson is making, which is that Trump is the DNC's candidate. Trump is the Democratic candidate. They want Trump because they're so corrupt. They don't give a shit. That's who that's who they they can play best with. Um, And they just hand it to Biden or Buttigieg or Warren or whoever. Uh, Okay. Let's say you have a riot. Doesn't matter. Bernie's still not the candidate. <clears throat> so then there's two options. Bernie either goes independent, which I think would be honestly the least. That would be the best possible option because the press would have to report on somebody with that kind of fire. Like there's just there'd be no getting around it because by then Trump would be attacking Bernie directly. So if for no other reason, again, Trump would help Bernie win. Um, that's literally the best case scenario. If Bernie gets the nomination, then the DNC will start actively working for Trump behind the scenes. All the money will go to Trump, all the ad money. Trump will fight him off as best he can. But if he gets reelected, which he doesn't want to get reelected, but he he just wants to stay in power. There could be on Like then all hell could break loose. I don't think they'll assassinate Bernie if he's a third party candidate, but they definitely... Again, they fucking killed Bobby Kennedy in the lead up to 68. They killed John F. Kennedy's brother, who was go- basically the presumptive nominee by then. He had taken all of the fucking momentum away from everybody else. Um, Like, all hell will break loose. Now, let's say Bernie wins the election as a Democrat. And they offer Trump a, a coup opportunity, meaning just don't just don't hand over power peacefully. Again, it's backed by the entire establishment. Then what do you have? As my friend said, it could easily become civil war conditions, uh, literally. So <clears throat> I I just think we're in we're in a much much more volatile moment than anybody is really talking about, um, and. That should, if we're serious about, you know, taking power, like, well, and then like played out differently. Let's say somehow Bernie like maneuvers his way into actually taking the oath of office. Then what? Then we have a worse fight on our hands. Then literally Bernie will have to take the Justice Department and weaponize it against the entire business class. Mm -hmm. Fucking day zero. It's going to have to be literal antitrust tribunals Mm -hmm. and locking these motherfuckers up. Um, shutting down all the investment banks. Like he's going to have to stage literally like a Bain style revolution uh, in the country. Is he literally, are they not going to kill him at that point? Like wherever this shakes out, like in quote unquote, in our favor, it's all really fucking dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, what's the alternative? Four more years of Trump. Shit. I'd prefer four more years of Trump to four years of Biden. Four years of Biden is going to be just fucking like warfare like you've never seen in your – in literally in any of our lives. 
you know, except maybe Vietnam or something. But <clears throat> uh, the scale will just be unbelievable. We'll be in a nuclear. We'll literally be in a nuclear war within six months. Like I don't see any other way. It's like. And but again, Trump is so impotent that like four more years of Trump means this climate collapse. So like, again, Bernie's our only hope, but this is this should be more. I hope that for people, this is a terrifying prospect uh, precisely because things can change so rapidly. I was going to add that I to your point about Occupy, I was only in uh, Standing Rock when that was going on for one day, but it felt sort of sort of like that um, too in that there was chatter that this thing could be successful that Obama would kill Keystone that you know the 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 cops or the the National Guard would pull out or back off or whatever and that that was scary it's terrifying because then the the assumption is okay so this this action worked it we won suddenly you have a huge responsibility on your shoulders okay so we now what we need to take the next step we need to keep pressing forward and that's a that's obviously um, overwhelming, right? That sense that you won and you don't know what's going to happen next, but it's your responsibility to keep pressing forward on this particular issue, especially where climate change is concerned. But um, it, so, from a different perspective, for me, all the I know they're hit pieces, and I agree, and the polling is interesting and weird about Bernie, but it feels like I'm in like in, I'm in high school again, and I was really into this band, and nobody else who knew this knew who this band was and suddenly it's when everybody else likes the band i'm like oh well, well i don't want to you know like i kind of don't want to don't want to be in that in that crowd anymore obviously this is not like that because i do want to continue to support this candidate but um it just is a weird feeling and it reminds me of those those times in my life is what i'm getting at where suddenly everyone not everyone the winds sort of started blowing in my direction and i didn't know how to respond to that like it just didn't feel right having felt um so used to being going going against the wind or whatever um and i'm trying to adjust sure i guess i doesn't i don't have that feeling because this is a war <laughs> right um like i understand what you're saying mm -hmm. definitely but like i was thinking about something we were talking about <clears throat> off air last week about just like you were saying that like sometimes like gets overwhelming how depressing some of the shit is mm -hmm. that's going on, which is fair enough. But I was trying to think about why I don't really experience it like that. I think it's just because for me, this is all, um, this is a war. Like we're in a war and that I think is the simplest version of what the difference, what the difference of my perspective and, and other people's. And I'm not talking about what you're saying because I certainly get depressed too. Um, but I think, like, what trumps that, haha, is that, like, we're in a war whether we want to be in one right. or not. And both a political war, which can become a shooting war, not what I want, but, you know, we've talked about that. Um, and, like, the idea of, like, what it means to be a militant in, in again, not a shooting way, but politically, like, what that means is, as Badu says in his philosophy for militants, basically just someone committed to an ideal, mm -hmm. um, someone, a principled person or whatever. And like, I was, um, this is something I kind of wanted to like, just explore a little bit, which is, uh, I, it, part of my book project, I talk about sort of in defense of true detective season two. Now, True Detective season two was roundly like panned by everyone. So season one was with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, a pretty, a, a very good and well executed, you know, 
at that point, you know, top probably three um, detective seasons of a show ever. Uh, people loved it, and I did too. Season two was people fucking hated it, basically. It's incredibly divisive. I loved it. To me, in my opinion, you know, if people are being honest, in 20 years we'll look back and that'll be seen as basically the greatest season of television of all time. Um, what people people just didn't understand what it was, I think. And what it was was it was a Western set in L.A., but it was, it was incredibly apocalyptic. And... Um, like the sh- the the season opens with Vince Vaughn's character telling this like horrific story about his you know his, his girlfriend or whatever his significant other his partner is like she's like what are you thinking about and he's telling this story about how his dad was a drunk and he would like lock him in the basement when he went out drinking and one time he didn't come back for like three days and like you know, he's in the darkness for so long um, and you know she's just kind of horrified and empathetic but she's like i she's like sometimes i wonder how many of those stories you have you know how what else is like locked up in your head um the the show the the season's incredibly like intricate in terms of like what happens but basically um there vince vaughn's sort of like a he's a gangster who he started off as just a drug dealer running protection rackets and shit like that but he he saved up enough money you know by sheer will and ruthlessness to be able to get in hopefully on this high-speed rail project uh that was as he called it the last piece of pork in american history uh through the central corridor of california and if he would have got in on it it would have you know created a situation where he would have been legitimately rich like bona fide at that point um well the people he's involved in with end up fucking him over and he has to go back to uh dealing drugs and at one point in the show his his girlfriend is like kind of like why do you why don't you just quit let's just like move away or whatever and he he just says to her i was born on the wrong side of a class war um and ultimately he ends up being the catalyst for a lot of what happens in the show but the 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 detective angle revolves around all these sort of dejected cops who end up on this kind of um this sort of communist uh task force that is secret that the attorney general's running to try and like uncover some corruption and they find these these guys running girls uh up and down the coast and it gets tied into this high speed rail project um and like Taylor Kitsch's character he's this like ex uh I don't know if he's a Marine or Navy SEAL or something like special forces type guy who has all this like money. He has all this cash. He's poor, but he has all this cash uh, stolen from what sounds like some kind of like shady shit that went down in Afghanistan. Uh, He's highway patrol. He's closet case. And he gets he gets extorted by some actress because he writes her a ticket. He's highway patrol. So he's on the motorcycle. That's what he likes to do. And she tries to, like, basically offer him sexual favors in exchange for letting her go, and he won't do it. So she says he tried to sexually assault her and all this stuff. And then Rachel McAdams' character gets gets clapped for sexual harassment against because she, she fucked a, a, another guy, cop. <laughs> and she has to go to this meeting with all these assholes who are, like, actual sexual harassers. And so she's just trolling them and stuff. But she's, like, super hardcore, like, 
Uh, she has all this really intense PTSD from being kidnapped and sexually assaulted. She can't even remember it when she was a kid. And her dad is like this ex-hippie and part of his terrible, like, guru-style lifestyle allowed her to be exploited. Um, and so it's all these – and then Colin Farrell's character is sort of like a dirty cop who also – kind of like he keeps wanting to connect with his son and all this stuff anyway they form this sort of communist cell and end up exposing all of this like sex trafficking and all this stuff but a lot of them get killed along the way and then all at the end rachel mcadam and vince vaughn's wife um, report all this stuff they're hiding in venezuela to escape extradition but they they blow the whistle on all of the all of this stuff that that their their men died for, um, and Rachel McAdams is like, I'm doing this for you know Colin Farrell was her love interest. I'm doing this for his sons, uh, so they know who he was. And <clears throat> I'm I'm going into this because I think it like Vince Vaughn's character is so like there's a obviously a baked in sort of tragedy, but he doesn't see himself as a tragic figure. He's just he's just trying to survive. Um, and he ends up self-destructing because he's sort of principled in his own way, but it's that self-immolation that is required to, if it wasn't for him and if he didn't do all this shit, it, none of this would have gotten exposed because Vince Vaughn ends up helping, even though he's saying he's only doing it for the money, he ends up helping Colin Farrell go and like light up these, these guys who had stolen all this money from Vince Vaughn, but in the process they're able to uncover all this like larger, like how the whole society is corrupt. Um, and I think like, I think that's the sort of darkness of our moment. I know that, which is another reason why the show isn't popular because it's actually exposing the rot at the core of everything. And the, but what's required to actually change things is that sort of self instrumentalization and to just give way to, like any sort of personal individualistic neoliberal concerns, even if you're sort of like pretending to act in the service of those things, ultimately the goal is much bigger. Or even if you can't see that goal, you're acting in service of an idea of a cause that maybe is unnamed at some level. And so I think like it's, it's vitally important that if, if we're to understand, if we're to tr like, you know, I'm always talking about how the left doesn't want to win. The reason for that is largely opportunistic, careerist, and cynical, which is to say the left doesn't want to win because it's going to, as Zizek points out, like destabilize these academics' like comfortable lives. Um, if we're not willing to step outside of that, outside of those concerns, then we can't win. And that's why it terrifies me that Bernie is uh, appearing to get mainstream traction because that means the target is massive. Like – they should not have switched this quickly from ignoring him to saying he's the, almost the presumptive nominee. Mm -hmm. There should be a period where they're saying, ah, he can't fucking win. So one of two things has happened. Either they're, they're gathering forces to try and just utterly destroy him and or um, things are so unstable that they've, they don't have the power to stop him, which again, that should seem like good news, but from a, from a strategic perspective, that's that's a scary situation unless you have the the apparatus on the ground to move into power. So I think like that's another reason, you know, anybody listening to this who has any sympathy with our ideas should consider running for office, not for, again, political careerist reasons, but to throw yourself into the fray 
throw yourself into the fire, sacrifice yourself at a you know certain level, sacrifice your time because we are in a fucking war, and this war will end uh, either with the destruction of humanity or you know like communism, like Zizek says, see you in communism or see you in hell. Um, those are sort of our options, and it's those contradictions are becoming more and more like extreme. Like you know, we haven't even talked about the Australian brush fires they are there's what six times bigger than what the amazon i mean this is like truly australia is basically the size of the u.s and it's on the whole thing is on fire i mean we can't i can't even imagine what that is um like you know without even going into the horror of like half a billion animals presumed dead um entire species wiped out like just crazy, like almost cartoonish level of destruction. Mm-hmm. Like it's like these crazy animes are coming true or something right, like or that. Mad Max. Or something. Yeah. Um, and so like the, the sort of, so then to sort of like, so that's, that's all dark. Obviously the, I think the lighter side of that, the, the light we can wring out from that is, um, another film I wrote extensively about, which is uh, edge of tomorrow live, live, die, repeat. So it says Tom Hanks and Emily Blunt. It's set in the, I think it's set in like 2020. So, you know, sort of near future or whatever, but there's this crazy like alien invasion and Tom Cruise's character is this kind of cynical, like he's a, he's basically like a PR guy for the army, but he's in the army. He's like an officer, but he doesn't, he wants nothing to do with like fighting or any of that. Like he doesn't give a fuck about the cause. He's just doing this to like become a contractor, get paid in the end or whatever. Um, and he, he keeps, he, he keeps ending up in this battle against these aliens and then he keeps getting killed, but he keeps waking up this, this restarting the day, like a groundhog day thing. Um, and so over time he's, he's trying all these different angles to basically survive the day. Um, Emily Blunt is this heroic fighter. She's called like the angel or something. So she wears this mech suit and like can kill all these aliens. Well, he finds out that she's in the same, she ends up in the same predicament as him, but not necessarily on that day. So every single day he has to go maneuver his way out of the bit camp, like have this weird interaction with Bill Paxton, who's wonderful. Uh, and <laughs> rest in peace, rest in peace and f- find Emily Blunt, explain to her what happened and then, um, try to figure a way out of this. And so he, it's this beautiful Hegelian movie because, uh, he has to basically like, he tries all he tries every pot it's like it's like Lenin make all possible mistakes he literally makes all possible mistakes and ultimately he has to in order to save her he has to not even he has to ignore her like he has to he thought he needed her help and then he eventually figures out he has to just let her go um and I'm not even saying that's the resolution of the film but the form the way that they're trying to change time he's trying to like he's caught in this loop and he's trying to like manipulate this temporality, not because he wants to, but because he has no other choice to try and get to wherever he needs to get. But over time, like the aliens who have him caught in this loop, they eventually sort of, he's, it's this weird thing where you get like 
your consciousness becomes a part of the aliens and they, they can sort of find you in this collective consciousness, uh, like being or whatever. And like, I, I'm not concerned with how the film ends. I'm just saying like the, what we need, we need to see ourselves in sort of this comic dimension of if we're this caught in this fucking nightmare and it is cartoonish, then that comedic dimension is not just some sort of like saving grace or pressure release valve, but is precisely the logic itself. Like that was what Brecht said about Hegel. Like you can't understand Hegel unless you understand comedy, that that is what is happening um, in the Hegelian system. So I think it's incumbent upon us to be always reading against the grain and always be willing to say like self-sacrifice doesn't have to be this noble selfless martyrdom thing. It can just be a comedic move. Like as Jisha constantly points out in the world of comedy, like people are always already like sort of humiliated and without dignity. And um, it's only the tragedy that you have like, fundamental dignity that's being sort of betrayed or violated with comedy or just like it has this plasticity to reality um the rube is always like the target of the laugh but the rube doesn't have any dignity to begin with which is partly why it's funny at least in a you know sort of slapsticky kind of way and incidentally one of zizek's uh comrades in a philosophical slovenian comrades alenka zupancic who he claims is like better than him. Um, she, she's written about how slapstick comedies like came about in a very particular sort of class war um, culture of the, you know, the D- great depression. And the fact that we don't see slapstick as much anymore is sort of like, that's a regressive move. Now, what I would say is <laughs> thanks to, thanks to the genius of Donald Trump, like the slapstickiness is just everywhere. Like he's, right. he's turned that into all, the whole political reality. Mm-hmm. And so again, as scary as this moment is, we should see it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And the last thing to do is to rest on our laurels and, or assume that a glorious future is going to come. It's up to us to sort of like throw ourselves into the fire and figure out a way to use all our intelligence, all our will, all our drive, all our grit to, you know, intrude into in a as Lennon would have it principally principled opportunistic way and just you know throw caution in the wind and say that the system has already collapsed but it's upon it's incumbent upon us to make sure everybody sees that but hopefully (laughs) ultimately um you know if we get lucky uh can can wrest a future out of that that isn't like complete horror